Testing, testing, one, two, three. Welcome and thank you for joining us. We're back on the scene like a sex machine on Back Like Cinema, the podcast. I'm your host, Zoe, that's Z-O or Z-O. For those of you overseas, outside of the U.S., saying the word or saying the letter Z like Z, you know, you know what the deal is. And we're taking a back, uh, we're taking a look back at the movies of yesteryear. It's the 76th episode. Thank you for downloading or streaming. We really appreciate it. The reason we started this show was to strengthen the bond between my son, Zach, and me, Zoe. We, we watched movies that I loved when I was growing up in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. And I'm going to tell you what Zach thought about those classic movies, like the one we watched yesterday. And finally, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and TikTok. You can find the details in the show notes. Now, Juneteenth was yesterday, and I wanted to continue with the theme of the holiday today. Last week, we talked about a historical fiction film that was set a few decades after the first Juneteenth celebration. And we will continue along those lines, but with a completely different tone. Last week, we watched The the, the Color Purple. This week, we talk about Harlem Nights. Up next... We're going to talk about it in the opening credits. All right, so here we are in opening credits. And the movie that we talked about was Harlem Nights. In Prohibition-era Harlem, New York City, an African-American speakeasy owner, Sugar Ray, has brought himself and his close cadre of friends from a tiny hole in the ground to a huge successful establishment. This success has garnered the attention of a local, wealthy, and dangerous mobster who sees the success of that speakeasy as a threat to his criminal empire. For Sugar Ray, the only option is to close up shop and relocate. But he also has to keep his hot-headed protege, a young man named Quick, from making the situation go from bad to worse. This movie was released November 17th, 1998. I'm sorry, 1989. (laughs) the year I graduated high school. (laughs) It was produced by Eddie Murphy Productions and Paramount Pictures. It grossed over $40 million in the U.S. and Canada and on a $30 million budget. It had mixed reviews. So uh, as you can see from this report, it was uh, not exactly a smash hit. If it it broke even, I'd be super surprised. Uh, Perhaps my friends over at Not A Bomb Podcast would probably want to take a look at this movie it barely made double its budget so that speaks to a bomb in most financial hollywood circles <laughs> but uh because you you really want a movie to make three times its budget to can to even having it having considered for even it to be considered to be uh slightly profitable so so um i'm not exactly sure how paramount or eddie murphy eddie murphy productions had what their take on that movie was but um as far as conventional wisdom is concerned it basically bombed at the box office but and i remember watching this movie when i was growing up i don't know if i watched it on video cassette or if i watched it in the theater i'm pretty sure i watched it at home and i remember not thinking that it was like a super great movie you know it had some some moments that i laugh at that live with me to this day but i don't know if it was like 
if I could consider one of the best movies I ever saw. And I actually was conflicted on featuring it on this podcast, but I decided, you know what, I, I need to give it a shot. And I know that Z- that Zach's threshold for quality is not as high as mine is. That He likes uh, some movies that I would consider total duds. He, he absolutely loves some of those movies. So um, I, I decided to give this movie a try. And, um, and I came out surprised at myself because I actually liked it a lot more than I remember liking it. It, it resonated with me a lot more. I think because there are some things about the movie that I understand better than when I did when I first watched the movie or the couple of times that I watched the movie when I was a lot younger than I am now. And Zach, asked, I, he, he really liked the movie. He, the movie was a joy. It was funny. It was. Uh, it, it holds up very well, I believe. There are some. There are certain things that we would consider very insulting today that uh, was just funny back when I was growing up. So, um, what's the word? Content warning. There for this movie. If you hadn't seen it already, there is a lot of fat jokes, and nowadays we would consider it uh, fat shaming or even call it fat phobia, I guess. But it's and the, and there is a lot of that going around. But a lot of it is done in um is done with affection. So a lot of a lot of the fat jokes are done with affection. Also, there there's a moment that one the this movie has a character that has a severe stuttering issues. And if you've been listening to this show, you notice that I have some slight stuttering issues. I would not say that my stutter is debilitating, but I've noticed it's more noticeable as I listen to myself make these recordings. So, but this character has severe studying issues, but it's not the heroes of this tale that make fun of his issues. They they actually are patient with him and, it, you know, they're very good. Apparently they, they are very good friends. So um, some people might take issues with the way that his issue is handled in the movie. But um, I, I don't think I had a problem with how it was portrayed. But those are the things that might not have aged well, but pretty much everything else, it, it, it felt really good. And the jokes are still funny. I think because the jokes are about the context of the movie and not like outer commentary of the world where the uh, or the era that the movie takes. Well, the era that the t- movie takes place, yes, but not um, it, it's no commentary on the out, the world outside of that or the time period uh, when the movie was released. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Or am I just jabbering along like some mindless idiot? Maybe I could be doing that. So let's see who started in this movie. Up first, of course, is Eddie Murphy. He plays a character named Vernus Quick Brown. Now, throughout the movie, he's known mainly as Quick. But in the movie, it is revealed that his real name is Vernus Brown. So we know many of the movies that this world-renowned actor-comedian has been featured in. So I'll just focus on some of the movies that are in pre-production that he's involved with. So hopefully we'll see in the next couple of years Beverly Hills Cop 4, Triplets with Arnold Schwarzenegger, and You People, all starring Eddie Murphy. Up next is Richard Pryor, who plays Sugar Ray. He was in Superman 3, Bustin' Loose, See No Evil, Hear No Evil. The legendary Red Fox played Bernie Wilson. Most people know him. Certainly I knew him first 
as the star of this hit sitcom called Sanford and Son. He was also in Cotton Comes to Harlem and the I'll, I'll mention it later on in the trivia, but the events of this movie, Harlem Nights, inspired the TV show that he starred in called The Royal Family. Up next is Danny Aiello. He played Phil Cantone. He's been in Do the Right Thing, Leon, the Professional, and Moonstruck. That's a great, heavy character actor. Next is Michael Lerner. He played Bugsy Calhoun, who's also in Barton Fink, Godzilla, 1998, and Elf. Della Reese played Vera Walker. She's been in Chico and the Man, Touched by an Angel, and Beauty Shop. The first two I mentioned were TV shows. She's mainly a television star, but she's also appeared in some movies such as Beauty Shop. Belinda Tolbert played Annie. She was in Goodfellas, Patriot Game, and Live with an explanation point. Ex- exclamation, not explanation. Sometimes I don't even know the words that are coming out of my mouth. Up next is Stan Shaw. Speaking of which, he played Jack Jenkins. He was in Daylight, The Monster Squad, and Rising Sun. Jasmine Guy played Dominique LaRue. She was in School Days, Scary Movie 5, but most people know her in a sitcom called A Different World. Vic Polizos played, I think that's how you say his name. He played Richie Vento. He's been in Eraser and Superhero Movie. Layla Rick. Rayla, oh, hold on, hold on, let me. I'm, I, I could say it in my mind, but then when it came to my lips, I didn't do my facial exercises before I started recording. That my bad. So <laughs> I was trying to say, Leila Rochon. Oh nope, that's still not right. Leila Rochon. I, you know what? I'm not exactly sure how you say her name. I should have looked it up. Looked this up. So we'll go with Leila Rochon. She plays Sunshine. She was in Waiting to Exhale and Any Given Sunday. Up next is David Marciano. He played Tony. He was in Due South, I'm sorry, Due South, and a movie called Lethal Weapon 2. Arsenio Hall played the crying man. He was in Coming to America and Black Dynamite. Thomas Mackay Ford played Tommy Smalls. He was in New York Undercover. The Parkers, but most people remember him as one of the stars of the great uh, sitcoms of the 1990s, Martin. Uncle Ray Murphy played Willie. He's been in Coming to America and Beverly Hills Cop 2. Up next is great comedian Robin Harris. He's been in House Party and More Better Blues. And finally, last but not least, this is one of the early film appearances of one Charlie Murphy, Darkness. (laughs) He played Jimmy. He's also been in Black Jesus, but most people caught him for the first time, including myself, in Chappelle's show. Like, obviously, I seen him when he was in this movie and some of the other movies that Charlie Murphy appeared with his brother, Eddie Murphy, but I didn't know who he was at the time. It was a small part. He said a few lines, but <laughs> what it's like, and they don't, and I didn't clock that they, they look almost exactly alike, but um, 
now and now as I'm doing this report, as as I'm doing more research on some of these actors, I was like, oh my goodness, he he uh he was in this movie too. So yeah, I miss Charlie Murphy. So this movie was directed by Eddie Murphy. This is his first and only directed movie. This movie was written by Eddie Murphy. He's also written Beverly Hills Cop 2, Another 48 Hours, Vampire in Brooklyn, and Norbit. And obviously, as a stand-up comedian and as a character on, or he played numerous characters on Saturday Night Live, he's a a prolific writer. The music is by Herbie Hancock, a legendary musician. He's also written for Death Wish, A Soldier Story, Colors, and Action Jackson, which I think I remember when we we also had did a show on A Soldier Story. But um, I just wanted to point out that I didn't realize that he had worked on movies and before I had did, uh, did the episode on A Soldier Story. So... That's it for the opening credits. And if you enjoyed the show, remember you can get t-shirts, hoodies, masks, mugs, jerseys, and more at our refurbished website, backlickcinema.com slash shop. And you can check out weekly for new designs and products. I'll leave the links to teespring.com and teepublic.com on the site. And in particular, you can get the pie glasses that are only available at Teespring. Up next... We're going to take a look at the stuff I heard. All right. So this is some stuff I heard that's been reported from various sources. And you know what? I don't actually go looking for news, I but I am somewhat addicted to my phone. And one of my favorite things to do is to scroll the news and to see what's going on in the world. And sometimes I'll catch stuff to, of interest that I, I feel like I, I like to report. So one of the things that's been reported from various sources, but I first found it on geeksocitymagazine.com. Or no, I'm sorry, that's not that's that's not how you say that. Is geekocitymag.com. Geekocitymag.com. So it was written by the editor-in-chief, Mikey Sutton. So DC Films has removed Ezra Miller from future movies based on The Flash. They may release the movie The Flash, currently in pre- post-production, straight to streaming. So um, you know who they are and what they've been up to. Ezra Miller has been wilding out. I mean, g- being arrested for several times, getting multiple restraining orders, being accused of all types of stuff. So um, and and last I've heard, he's kind of in hiding. Like there's some authorities that are trying to serve him with some... Uh, with papers that that's supposed to be a restraining order, but uh, he's been in hiding and they can't find them. So well, they've been in hiding. I'm sorry. They've been in hiding and they can't, and the authorities can't find them. So, you know, he's, I'm sorry, they've been wilding out and uh, I don't even know what, what's wrong with them. I, I, I pray that they get the help that they need, but it's ruining DC's plans for what they had for going forward with their superhero movies. So the flash, I don't know if this is going to be subtitled flashpoint, but it's going to be based on the flashpoint comics and and flashpoint. The movie is supposed to straighten out the, the DC universe to, in in a sense, make it make sense 
to to lay people. Um, so in a storyline of Flashpoint in a comics, and you've probably seen a version of it on the CW on the Flash TV show. In Flashpoint, the Flash goes back to try to prevent the murder of his mother and changes the timeline to where it's it's all messed up and he has to basically, I don't know, bring it back to where it was before he went on this adventure to try to save his mother. So what I've heard is that the movie is supposed to be based on that. And then they're supposed to kind of jumpstart the DC cinematic universe based on what happens in Flashpoint. But now that... (laughs) Uh, Ezra Miller was supposed the Ezra Miller version of the Flash was was supposed to be a key part to that but because the actor themselves is wilding out the way they are DC is scrambling to read I don't know make new plans and basically they're not going to proceed uh, doing future movies with Ezra Miller so um, they're probably going to get they're probably going to release the film starring Ezra Miller because it would be too too expensive to not um, to not continue well to do re- reshoots with another actor. It'd be too expensive to do reshoots with an, with another actor, and it'll be a loss of two hundred million dollars if they chose to shelve this product. So um, they wanted to release it in theaters, but they fear they the studio fear that Ezra Miller is so toxic right now that it wouldn't be worth the trouble of or the expense of trying to release in movie theaters. So there's a rumor going out that they, the studio may just release it on HBO Max or they might consider uh, a simultaneous release in theaters and on HBO Max. I don't know what's going to happen. I do hope I get to see it because there's a lot of great things that's going on in here. It's going to have at least two different versions of Batman, one from Ben Affleck and one from the classic Batman from 1989, Michael Keaton. They're also introducing a new Supergirl that has was rumored to replace the Superman in the universe. And I don't know who else is going to be appearing in the movie. I hope it comes out in some form because I really like to see it. So only time will tell what's going to go on with this movie. So let's go to the next story. Why don't you tell me what you think? Because I don't know anymore. So in the next story, James Hibbert of The Hollywood Reporter, he wrote that Game of Thrones, Jon Snow's sequel series is in early development at HBO. So a sequel series to Game of Thrones, that would be very interesting. See how that all shakes out. Interestingly, HBO did not want to discontinue Game of Thrones. It was the writers and producers, the showrunners who wanted to they they wanted to move on from Game of Thrones. They wanted to stop Game of Thrones because HBO was throwing all the money at it. They wanted to continue, but the producers decided that they had enough. And that's why we got the truncated season and that weird, unsatisfying last season. And HBO, they're like, they, they've finagled a way to continue the series in various ways. So, of course, you know about the prequel series that's supposed to come out in August. And and now there's this announcement of a sequel series. So I, I'm looking forward to seeing what all what all of that looks like. So that's it for the stuff I heard. And now next we talk about our favorite parts.
here we are with our favorite parts. We talk about our favorite parts of the movies, or I talk about it. And I'm going to let you know what Zach thought about. I'm going to start off with, with his take. Uh, as I said earlier, he really liked the movie. And I asked him what his favorite parts are. In particular, he liked the alley fight between Vera and Quick. So Vera is uh, the, the head of the prostitutes in Quick's establishment. So, it, well, let me give you kind of a small rundown. As as I said earlier, um, in the movie, uh, or what the movie was about, is basically a speakeasy owner named Sugar Ray. He came up from having a like a tiny hole in the wall to some big a big fancy establishment, and I think he calls it Sugar Ray's Club or something like that. And it's like he has a close uh, personal friends that he got helping him run this business. So. You got uh, Quick, which, which is his protege. You got uh, Bernie Wilson. And Bernie Wilson is kind of like uh, like basically a, another partner, but he mainly runs the gambling tables. You have a couple of other partners. And you also have Dela Reese, who plays Vera Walker. Vera is the head of the prostitutes. And, oh, I'm sorry, the sex workers in, in the establishment. So... Preceding this scene with uh, the showdown between Quick and Vera Walker, Quick kind of, he doesn't directly accuse Vera of stealing money, but he is suspicious about how little money that the sex workers are bringing in. So at the gambling table, hundreds of dollars are brought in. At the bar, hundreds, well, thousands of dollars are brought in. And I said that the gambling brought in hundreds, but it's probably thousands of dollars. The The liquor table brings in thousands of dollars. The door brings in thousands of dollars. And uh, Vera, the madam of the sex worker, she only brings in $200. And Quick is upset. It's like, how how is your sex worker only going to bring in $200? He's upset. And, and he, he says, well, maybe there's something wrong with your arithmetic. And then Vera is very upset. It's like, oh, oh, that's how it's going to be. Well, you need to see me outside because you're not going to accuse me of stealing. You, and she's hot and she's upset. And then she's, uh, she challenges Quick to a fight. She's outside and they're talking and yelling and arguing. And she's challenging him to a fight. But Quick is more relaxed than that. Quick is not trying to fight Vera. Vera is a much older woman. He's old enough to be his mother probably. And he's not trying to fight her. And he's confident that he could, he could, break her or he he could put her in a hospital he he's confident in his fighting abilities and he he doesn't think he takes vera as a joke essentially and um and then that's when vera starts punching him in the face and, and he feels it it's like he's fine and then when he punches back she takes it <laughs> he punches her in the gut and she's like oh that's what i'm talking about and they get to fighting and and sure enough uh Vera kicks his butt. Like, so she lies him flat on his back. She she beats the crap out of him. And then he kind of, she's standing over him, demanding his apology. And he reaches over. He grabs a trash can lid because they're out in the alley fighting. And she pops her in the head with the trash can lid. And then when she's down, he picks up a trash can and throws it on her. And he thinks he's going to fight. But then she gets up and she says, oh, now you want to throw trash cans of people well now i got to cut you and then she pulls out a razor blade <laughs> and then 
quick pulls out uh like a tiny pistol i think it's a i think it's called a derringer i don't i don't know pistols just imagine a very tiny pistol yeah it's a pistol so small that you could probably fit it in the palm of your hand you could you could hide it in your fist is so small so he pulls this out and he threatens Vera. He says, I'm going to shoot you in your pinky toe if you if you don't put that knife away. And then he shoots her in the pinky toe. And, and they have to call an ambulance and take her to a hospital. But, uh, yeah, so that fight between Quick and Vera, that's one of the funniest scenes in the movie. So also, Zach mentioned that... Um, there was a scene near the end of the movie where they pull in the scam. And one of the things that's hounding Sugar Ray and his gang is Detective Calhoun. So Detective Calhoun is on the opponent's payroll. He's a cricket cop. He's working for Bugsy Calhoun. So near the end of the movie, they're able to lock this cricket detective in a bank safe. So what happens is that the detective is following him. He thinks he got them dead to rights. And then he looks at him and he's saying, so uh, what I can't understand is why would you try to rob a bank that's been closed for seven or eight years? And who he's talking to is he's talking to Quick and Sugar Ray, and they're dressed as policemen. And they said, well, we're we're not here to make a withdrawal. We're here to make a deposit. And that's when some of the other members of Sugar Ray's group show up behind the detective. Now he's surrounded by guns. He has to drop his gun and they put him in the safe. And that's when Quick tells him, yeah, there's, there's not a lot of air in here. So I guess you're going to have to take really small breaths. So what happened is that when they put him in there, it's like when he complains to Sugar, Calhoun complains to Sugar, you know, there's not a lot of air in here. And Sugar says, well, Jimmy says that you probably got two days, two and a half days of air in here. And he was like, who? Somebody is a, an expert that they can measure the air in the safe? And Jimmy happens to be there. And Quick asks, well, Jimmy, how much air? How much air is it? Two days? Jimmy says, yeah, two days, give or take a couple of hours. And that's when Quick says, yeah, so you need to take really short breath. <laughs> that was me imitating the really short breaths that Calhoun was supposed to take while he was locked in the safe. Uh, Because they weren't going to lock him in the safe permanently. They was just going to lock him in the safe long enough for them to get away. So they was going to call the police after two days. So uh, Calhoun needed to to survive for two days in the safe. He was going to call the police. And by the time the police get there, the rest of the gang will be gone. Because the whole plan is to get out of town. So uh, there he is, Calhoun, sitting in a safe, taking really small breaths, trying to survive for two days. That that was a funny moment. Going back a little bit to the fight scene between Vera and Quick, one of the things that had made it funny was that when, because Vera, Vera would get knocked down severely and she would get back up. So one of the times that she get back up, I think this is after she gets hit by a trash can, she gets back up. They start playing the Jaws theme <laughs> to show just how dangerous Vera is. And I, apparently at one moment they play notes from Psycho to, to show just how deranged she can be when she's all riled up. So there's another scene uh, that I really like. This this is the scene that I think sticks with most people. This is the scene that people think of when you mention Harlem Nights. So 
during the movie, uh, there, there's a lot of shenanigans going on, obviously, because it's a gangster movie. So one of Calhoun's men, this is the one, uh, Tommy Smalls, played by Thomas. So Tommy Smalls is accused by Calhoun for taking money off the top. Calhoun figures he's lost $5,000 to Tommy. And as uh, with, like with a lot of gangsters, when, when they make an accusation, they consider it fact. It, it's no trial or anything. They just, well, I think this guy is stealing from me, so I want you to destroy him. I want you to kill him. I want you to, you know, put him, put cement shoes on him and sink him in the bottom of the Hudson or something of that nature. In this case, Calhoun just wants his uh, Thomas's throat cut from ear to ear for stealing money from him. His uh, his number one guy. I don't know why this guy is either a number one or number two guy. I guess he's the number one guy. And I don't know why this guy's number one because he's he's somewhat incompetent. So this guy is Tony, played by Vic. I'm sorry. <laughs> it, um, Tony is played by David Marciano. So Tony is supposed to go and make sure that Tommy is taken care of. So they go to Tommy's place, and now it's not just Tommy, but it's Tommy and the cricket cop Calhoun. So they, after they accuse him of stealing money from Calhoun naturally Tommy says I don't know what you're talking about I don't get it I don't know you know that sort of thing and uh they're they're both sitting down in chairs so after Calhoun makes an accusation he shoots Tommy four times in the chest and then Victor said I'm sorry not Victor I'm getting all the names mixed up Tony says I was supposed to cut his throat from ear to ear so but Tommy's already did but Calhoun just looks at him and says well Go ahead, cut his throat from ear to ear. <laughs> so uh, Tommy does what he's told, and they leave. And so I'm not Tommy, but Tony. Tony does does what he's told, and and they both leave. So that leaves Tommy's dead body just sitting in the in the chair in his house. So later on, Quick comes by, and because they're trying to figure out what Tony, well, what Tommy knows. They know that Tommy is sent to Sugar Sugar Ray's club to spy on them. So Quick went to Tommy's house to find out what he knows. And when he goes to Tommy's house, he he sees Tommy's dead body. So he's like, okay, I'm going to just leave you here. And he leaves. So the scene I'm about to describe is what the scene I was saying that everybody remembers. So as he leaves Tommy's house, he's spotted by Tommy's brother, who is never named. He's on, He's credited as the crying man, and he's being played by Arsenio Hall. And he says, ain't that quick? And he's he's with, like, I guess four of, four of his boys, or his confidants. And they say, yeah. So they go into the apartment and go to Tommy's apartment. And they see that Tommy's throat has been cut. And they they think that Quick did it. So they go and they start driving after Quick. And, uh, <laughs> and the crying man is called so because he's a mess. He's crying. He's just constant crying and whining he's like quick then kill my brother i'm gonna kill him quick then kill my brother i'm gonna kill them i'm gonna kill that man quick then kill my brother he's just going on and on like that you know for a while and so uh and they're chasing quick in their cars so uh, the chase goes on the crying man is crying constantly and they're getting their tommy guns ready and then uh quick uh first he brakes check them and then he causes an accident where he rams his car into theirs and he jumps out of his own car. And then 
he goes hiding in a nearby abandoned building. He he actually jumps through the window, which is not realistic, but but that's what that's what they, it looks exciting, I guess. So <laughs> so he's he's in he's in this uh, abandoned store. So the uh, the crying man in his game, they come up, they catch up to him. And so two of the guys, one of the guy is accidentally killed when um when Quick Break checked the car that was following him. Tommy was handling his machine gun, and because of the crash, it caused him to accidentally pull the trigger. And there's a guy in front of him, so he accidentally kills the guy that was in front of him with his Tommy gun. So the downwind man. And so now everybody's crying because not only is Tommy killed, but his confidant is accidentally killed by himself. So now there's only three of them. It's the driver who has a regular pistol and then the crying man and his uh, other associate. So they start pouring bullets into this, uh, into this abandoned store trying to shoot quick. So it's the two guys with their Tommy gun. And then you hear pap, pap from this six shooter. And then all the while, the crying man is crying, I'm going to kill you quick. I'm going to kill you. And then once again, and then you hear pap, 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 pap. And then Tommy, not Tommy, but uh, the crying man gets annoyed. He says, will you stop? Shooting with that dumb shit. What are you doing? You're not doing anything. Stop it with that dumb little shit. <laughs> and so there's a yeah, there's a pause in fighting. And then during the pause, Quick is is tired of hiding under cover. So he quickly gets up during the pause and he pulls off three shots for the three guys and he ducks back down and nothing happens. And when he gets out, he gets out of the store and finds that he has shot and killed all three men with amazing quickness hence the name so even he is surprised by being able to shoot all of these three men but he was able to do it he's able to get away and uh he goes <laughs> and he gets to safety he goes to the safety of sugar rays so that was uh that's just a fun scene that every everybody who has watched this movie uh remembers so continuing on um they're they're discussing plans on how to get out because they're being harassed by the gangster via this crooked cop and and the the gangster themselves. So the only play, as far as Sugar Ray is concerned, is getting out of the city. He knows that he's small time. He knows that he's not a gangster and that he is not equipped to go into a war with Calhoun. Calhoun is a real gangster, and he knows that if they get into a war with uh, a shooting war with Calhoun that he would lose. Calhoun has not just resources and money, but he also has resources and he's bought off judges. He's bought off members of the police department. So Calhoun is well connected in the city and in the criminal enterprise. And Sugar Ray just doesn't, he doesn't want to fight and he knows that he will lose if he get into a fight. He knows this, he knows he's, he's small time in spite of, all the money that his club is making, he knows he's small time. So Calhoun believes that the club is um, taking money that rightfully belongs to him. The first thing Calhoun does is that he sends, uh, I'm sorry, not Calhoun, but uh, yeah, is it Calhoun? You know what? Let me look up because I might be getting these people all mixed up. So um, 
in this narrative, I've been I've been saying Calhoun when when I meant to say Calhoun. I mean Cantone. I've been saying Calhoun when I meant to say Cantone. So Cantone is the cricket cop, and Calhoun is the is the gangster, the the head gangster of his criminal enterprise or whatever. But you know, it's not a big deal. You figure it out, anyways. <laughs> so uh, so basically, Sugar Ray does not want to get into a shooting war with Cantone. So the only uh, ob- so his objective is to try to basically steal money from Canton and get out of New York City. So they kind of de- devise a way of of um, just setting up this plan. So one of the plans is that they know that Can- Calhoun has a money man. So there's a big gambling event coming up. There's a heavyweight boxing match happening in New York City. So they know that uh, Calhoun, I'm sorry. Yeah, Calhoun has, um, you know, basically he's controlling all of the, most of the gambling in that area. So what they want to do is they want to trick Calhoun into um, embedding on the wrong fighter. So what they decide to do, they know. So uh, the heavyweight champion in this movie is Jack Jenkins. Jack Jenkins is a very uh pretty a large very well muscled fighting champion and uh, they remarked that they once seen him go 33 rounds in a boxing match he is a heavy favorite something like 3 to 1 odds or something like that i don't i don't know odds don't don't listen to me anyway he's heavily favored to win so um and he not only that but jack jenkins is a, a large black guy and the, his opponent is a white guy and it's like he's a black heavyweight champion there's no way that he's going to lose to this unknown white guy so they decide the gang decides that they would bet against jack jenkins the boxing champion and in betting against the box the boxing champion they would cause calhoun to believe that the champ is going to throw the fight they're going to encourage calhoun by the way they betting to bet against the champion also and then, you know, because of the odds, they'll make so much more money. And Calhoun looks at it as making, you know, a pretty good chunk of change. At the same time, they're going to rob Calhoun. They're going to uh, rob his money man. So they got to figure out a way to rob Calhoun's money man. And Calhoun, I guess he he's taking money from one place to uh, Calhoun. I, I don't know how illegal gambling works. He, he's a guy and he transports money. That's all. That's all I know. So the um, so the plan is to get a very attractive woman to find this man there because they already know who he is. So they're gonna send her to this man and basically involve ingratiate herself with him to so that they can construe a way to take this man's money that he's supposed to be delivering to Calhoun. So they need a woman that that's gonna distract this man. And so they asked Vera about it. And Vera says, I have a hoe whose pussy is so good. If you threw it in the air, it'll turn to sunshine. <laughs> and that, I love that. I love that line. <laughs> and it had uh, it had Ray Fox looking up in the air, imagining sunshine. <laughs> so um, that that was a neat part, and then uh, the so the call girl that she has lined up for 
this money man. The money man is Richie Vento. And so Vera sends Sunshine to be this distraction. Sunshine does her job. He's uh he's totally distracted. He's he's married, he has a wife and kids, and presumably he's a a doting husband to his kids and a very attentive husband. But when he meets Sunshine, he starts to forget all of that. So they start this relationship. He thinks it's good, but for Sunshine, he thinks it's real, but for Sunshine, it's just a job. So <laughs> um, on the night of the boxing match, they had, uh, well, before the boxing match, um, Sunshine is trying to get him to give her a ride somewhere. So she concocts the story about how she's, uh, she delivers money or something. And he doesn't reveal what he does to her, but he says like, one day I'm going to tell you what I do and we're all going to have a laugh. So the, she leaves, she's about to leave him because they're at a hotel room. But before she leaves, she says, I think I'm falling in love with you. And then she leaves and he's just, he's done. He's, he's done. He don't know what to do with himself. He calls his wife and uh, he reaches his kids and he says, put mama on the phone. And then when she gets on the phone, he says, I ain't never coming home again. Goodbye. And then hangs up and he feels real good about it. He, the, the expression, his body language after he finishes, after he basically di- divorces his wife over the phone, he feels real good about his decision. So um, that that's uh, another favorite part that I have. And I know a lot of other people have. And so the plan basically gets carried out. You know, the um, he goes and picks up what he thinks is his girlfriend, Shun- Sunshine, and they drive. They get into a traffic accident that is concocted by both Jimmy, who's controlling the traffic lights with some de- remote device, and Bernie, who's uh, played by Red Fox, and Vera. Vera and Bernie are driving. Well, Vera's driving the car because Bernie can't see anything. He's wearing his gigantic glasses. So <laughs> they're driving the car, and they uh basically t-bone the uh the car that the money man richie and his girlfriend sunshine are driving in so after this t-bone it's and when you think of a t-bone in like the 1930s it because of the low speeds they were driving it's not going to be a serious t-bone these cars are made of steel so <laughs> not much not much damage to these cars so they all get out and they're all uh and then the police show up almost right away, but the police happen to be quick and Sugar Ray. And what they want to do is they want to take the money that is supposed to go to Cancun, uh, cool, Calhoun, goodness gracious, couldn't even get a, the name out. So they they grab one of the bags, claiming that it's a bag that belongs to Sunshine. So Sunshine was trying to claim that she was a money girl, but the police accused her of being like, Miss Her- I'm sorry. They accused her of being a heroin um dealer. And they I think they said her name was Miss Heroin or Madam Heroin or something like that. So they faint like they're going to like arrest her. But the next thing you know, some other police show up. And this was uh these were some white police officers. And they tell her they tell them it's like this isn't your beat and and we'll take over from here. And all of this is being watched by Phil Cantone, uh, played by Danny Ello. Now, all this is because he's following 
everybody the whole time. So this this scene is being watched. He doesn't realize it, but this scene is being played for his benefit. So the police take custody of the bag and of of Sunshine. They go in the police car. They go on their way. They tell Quick and Sugar Ray to go on their way. And so Calhoun's money man is able to continue his journey. But uh, obviously when he gets to Calhoun, instead of money, piles of money, he has instead what he thinks are bags of uh, heroin but then when he breaks over the bag when he breaks open the bag it's not heroin it's sugar right <laughs> so and so he realized that he's been played they try to they go to sugar ray's home because they've already burnt down his building during the movie so they go to his home looking for him but uh they realize that they've been played they try to get out of his home and the home blows up but sugar ray still wants to get out of the city because right? now now they've blown up a crime lord and other crime lords might go after them or the police department was going to go after them and they figure they can't rebuild in the city so that that's basically the the whole plot kind of works out the way it was planned out by the uh by sugar ray and his and his cadre and they basically go on their merry way uh having made much more money because they've stolen a lot of Calhoun's money. So, and that's basically the whole movie. There, there were some other parts that, uh, that I left out. Like there's a part where they're, they're angry at, um, Beanie for not being able to see the dice. He's supposed to be the dice man at the table, but he can't see the dice. So he's calling out the wrong numbers or, uh, because he's not, he refuses to wear his glasses. Not like he don't have glasses. He just doesn't want to have glasses. And when he puts on his glasses, they're gigantic glasses. It's like they make his eyes look like owl's eyes. They're so, uh, their magnification is so great. And um, there are a couple of other things. But I just like, wanted to point out the main things that I really liked about this movie and some of the things that people remember about this movie. So um, that's it for the some of the favorite parts of this movie. Now we're going to move on to the trivia. So in this trivia session, um, let us review the trivia that I found on IMDb. In his autobiography, Prior Convictions and Others' Life Sentences from 1997, so this is a autobiography from Richard Pryor and in the title Prior Convictions Pryor is spelled P R Y O R as Pryor's it's Pryor's name. So I thought that was clever. So Richard Pryor stated or states that he never connected with Eddie Murphy. People talked about how my work had influenced Eddie and perhaps it did, but I always thought Eddie's comedy was mean. I used to say, Eddie, be a little nice, and that would piss him off. I finished Harlem Nights thinking that Eddie didn't like me. He said, I don't know the truth of that, and I don't know if there were any responses to that, but uh, it's interesting that these are his thoughts. Like, when, you, when your idols meet, you hope that they connect with each other. So this movie is, um, is it's uh, one of the things that was great about this movie is that it was uh gathering of some of the greatest idols in black entertainment so you had dela reese who's a fabulous singer you had 
Eddie Murphy, obviously the star at that time, he was the star uh, that was heavily starred at Hollywood when when he made this movie. And this is one of the reasons he was able to make this movie to be able to star, write, and direct and produce this movie is because he was um, of the status that he had at that time. Then um, Richard Pryor, who was a generation before Eddie Murphy, is one of, obviously one of, not only Eddie Murphy's influences, but a, a lot of comedians' influences. Richard Pryor is considered one of the greatest, greatest comedians of all time. And um, then you had Red Fox. Red Fox is uh, the, obviously the grandfather of this uh, trio of comedians. And Red Fox got his fame from, from producing records to uh to sell to the masses it, this is not common like today you would have pretty much every comedian has a comedy album the way they do it today is that they'll a comedian will work on his material for over a year and then after they've perfected their set they will basically uh put it on an album or they'll try to get a netflix special or hbo special or try to put it on tv sometime some kind of way sometimes they'll even release their special on facebook and put out all the material that they've been working on a year. And then they'll start from scratch working on brand new material. But back in the day, back in Red Fox Day, there was no such thing as that. There was You had a set list of jokes, and that's the only list that you worked from. And you went from club to club because there was like no widespread, there was no spreading of this work. So when you, release, when you told your jokes locally in like New York, nobody's going to hear those same jokes and like, uh, Bancor, Maine, or they're not going to hear those same jokes in in uh, Louisiana or anything like that. So, even though uh, they were like nationally famous, their jokes were basically localized, and you could tell those jokes, those same jokes, forever. Like you could build your entire career and never have to change your set list as a comedian. You were basically like a, a musician at that point. But Red Red Fox decided to start. Uh, selling his selling records. So I don't know if who was the first imp- inspiration for this. It, it may have been uh, Dolomites from the uh, Rudy. Ma- I'm sorry, Rudy Ray Moore. So it could have been that, or it could have been Red Fox influencing Rudy Ray Moore. But it, it, however, it first started. This is how Red Fox first gained his fame and fortune, and basically influenced how comedians did their work from then on. And so this is a. Uh, this collection of talent was just incredible and it was great to see them. And they really seem to have a great chemistry on the set of the movie. You can kind of see it when you watch the movie. Moving right along. Eddie Murphy once said that the jokes and camaraderie between him, Richard Pryor, Red Fox and Robin Harris and Della Reese behind the scenes were much funnier than anything that was in the film. So um, Robin Harris is another comedian that was extremely popular at the time that this movie was made. Everybody remembers his baby kids bit. And we used to recite that bit. Like when we were younger, that was one of our favorite memes was Robin Harris's baby, baby kids, uh, baby kids skit. And I think they even made it like a, a very limited TV show, a cartoon out of that skit or a movie or something. I'm not exactly sure. I didn't see it on IMDb, but I know that uh, Baby's Kids are based on his work. But um, 
Yeah, I can imagine the their kind of camaraderie camaraderie that they would have behind behind the scenes making this movie. According to Gabby Tartakovsky's June seventh, twenty eleven article, Harlem Nights, nineteen eighty nine, Eddie Murphy and the original gangsters of black comedy at the Pop Matters website, Pryor's toning down the Sugar Ray character wasn't scripted as such as Pryor believed his performance was the result of being bothered with the recent multiple sclerosis diagnosis, which he kept to himself at the time. So you're near the end of his career. Uh, Richard Pryor had developed visible signs of multiple sclerosis. And, and that was uh, personally for me, it's, it's really shocking for me to see him that way. But at the time he had just got the diagnosis and he believes that that kind of perf- uh, affected his performance. Like, especially when you compare, when you compare his performance in this movie compared to what you normally see Richard Pryor do in previous movies, he's very loud and bombastic and he's, he does a lot of movements, but in this, in this movie in Heart of Nights, he was very reserved and very calm. He was very low key in this movie and there's a different side of Richard Pryor. The vulgar yet playful arguments between Red Fox and Della Reese on the set inspired Eddie Murphy to create a series starring the two. The result was The Royal Family from 1991, which was Fox's final project before his death. So all the shenanigans that was going on the screen had was inspiration for this uh for this sitcom. When it's funny, right? Because I remember that like if you watch the movie and you see the the argument take place between Della Reese and Red Fox in their characters, it's it's hilarious. And you can see how somebody would look at that and think that, you know what, that that's not just a regular argument. That's that's a family argument. And it's a it's a family argument that needs to be on television. The movie starred three generations of African American stand-up comedians and actors, Red Fox, Richard Pryor, and Eddie Murphy, that I had mentioned earlier. During the scene at Sugar Ray's house, Detective Phil Cantone falsely sings It Don't Mean a Thing by Duke Ellington. In real life, Danny Aiello is an accomplished jazz singer. And I did not know that you from all the roles that he has taken, you, you wouldn't know that he, he's an accomplished jazz singer. The story of Irish mobster Bugsy Calhoun trying to take over Sugar Ray's nightclub in order to control Black Harlem is loosely inspired by the real-life feud between Jewish gangster Dutch Schultz and the Black gangster Bumpy Johnson over control of Harlem's lucrative numbers gambling rackets in the mid-1930s. By his own admission, Eddie Murphy felt that he didn't dedicate enough thought or care to the directing of his debut he was more concerned with time figuring out where the next party was going to be. And that's kind of a shame. And, and on one hand, when you watch this movie, you can kind of see that it probably would have figured fared better under a more attentive or competent director, or even if Eddie Murphy cared about enough about the project for it to be the best that he could put out. But that's what happens when you're super young and girls and drugs and parties were absolutely everywhere. Despite its harsh critiques by film critics, it became a cult classic over the years due to its humor and dialogue. And that is correct. 
This film was made because Eddie Murphy always wanted to direct and act in a period piece. Also, Murphy had always wanted to work with Richard Pryor, whom Murphy had considered to be the greatest influence on his work in stand-up comedy. And interestingly, uh, because he was at the place where he was at the time, he was able to make his dreams come true. Eddie Murphy performed four roles on this picture. Murphy was the film's director, executive producer, sole credited writer, and the top build star. In the movie Life, that came out in 1999, which also stars Eddie Murphy, his character says during his yard fight, Hey man, I know a bitch named Della that hits harder than you. Eddie is referring to Della Reese, who he has a fight with during Harlem Nights. Fuck. And its various derivatives are spoken 133 times in this movie. In the opening sequence, we're introduced to everyone in Sugar Ray's and Quick's inner circle, except for Vera. However, if you listen closely to the background noises as the young Quick is threading his way through Sugar Ray's club, you can hear Vera say her signature line, kiss my entire ass, to a customer who refuses to pay up. Finally, the film got Academy Award nominated for Best Costume Design but failed to win an Oscar in this category with the prize going to the historical outfits for Henry V. It came out in 1989. All right, that's it for the trivia. Let's go see what the critics thought. All right, looking over to see what the critics thought. At Rotten Tomatoes, the critics gave it a 23%. Audiences gave it an 80%. On IMDb, the reviews gave it 6.0 out of 10. Roger Ebert from Chicago Sun-Times wrote, An uninspired cross between Cotton Club and the characters of Damon Runyon told in cliches so broad you, you keep waiting for it to poke fun at itself, but it never does. Scott Weinberg from eFilmCritics.com wrote, Ugly, pushy, and over the top, but there is still a bunch of laughs to be found. I agree. Destin Thomas from the Washington Post wrote, Does it matter to Eddie Murphy whether Harlem Nights is good, or, is good or bad? It doesn't look like it. And I had touched on that earlier where Eddie Murphy admitted himself that he was not as vested in the film as director as he probably should have been. Vincent Canby from the New York Times wrote, Mr. Murphy's effort is distinguished by his own singular presence as an actor and by the delight he takes in appearing with his various co-stars. Yeah, you can see it. Dolores Barkley of Associated Press wrote, Murphy's writing is about as snappy as a Sunday school lesson. The constant obscenities become a distraction and the eventual turnoff and seem to be used when the writer and director can't invent something more creative. Finally, Richard Brody of The New Yorker wrote, The movie is a whirlingly divergent romp, blending serious violence with outrageous comedy, but it has the feel of an oral history of lives and times rescued from oblivion. Yeah, that's an interesting mix. I feel like the they're not as divergent, or the, the reviews I selected are not as divergent or as contrary to, 
to each other as uh, um, in earlier movies. I kind of, it, it almost feel like many of them are kind of saying the same things, but with uh, either a negative or positive slant. But um, I think it's, I think their takes are honest and somewhat accurate um, from their points of view, I think. So, because um, you can kind of see all of that in, in this movie. And so you're either going to be charmed by the, the dialogue or you're going to be turned off by it, or you're going to be charmed by the characterizations of uh, the 1930s era speakeasy scene, or you're not going to be. So, and I did not expect to like the, to like this movie, you know, going back and looking at it. I didn't expect to like it uh, as much as I liked it when I first saw it. And I don't think I liked it that much when I first saw it, but I I can say definitely of this film, I definitely liked it much more now. I appreciate it much more now than I did when I first saw it. And I think that even though I think somebody acting, well, specifically, I think Eddie's Murphy's acting was a little bit off. Only when like he lit up in certain scenes, but then in other scenes, he, he seems it is not quite right. It's, it, it's almost like he's he's trying to play dour or uh he's trying to play like the straight man but it's he's too he's he he's too monotone i think to to pull that off at least he is in this movie but at any rate it i um it i still really enjoyed this movie and uh zach enjoyed it i i uh i liked a lot of the bits that they played throughout the movie you can kind of look at this movie as a collection of bits and that is strung together to tell a really neat story and that's how I like to look at it. So that's it for Harlem Nights. Finally, this movie, Harlem Nights, is as of this recording available on HBO Max. That's it for today. This concludes our observance and celebration of Juneteenth. Next week, we go in a completely different direction, while at the same time continuing with the commentary on American culture with Starship Troopers. Follow us on Twitter at Backlick Cinema or on Facebook or Instagram at Backlick Cinema Podcast for updates. And now we're posting videos on TikTok. You can check out at Backlick Cinema. The, the TikTok is on at Backlick Cinema. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm reading my notes and I forgot what I wrote down. So when you forget what you write in your own notes, it's like you're reading it for the first time. And the tone and the, the pace is truly awkward <laughs> so what i was trying to say is that if you wanted to check out our videos on tiktok you can go to just type in at backlick cinema and you can find us so don't forget that you can contact us at with any questions uh, um or comments or suggestions at fanmail at backlickcinema.com or email us at fanmail at backlickcinema.com or go to the website and go to the the box and you can you can send it in the message box or I don't know, go online and find us online at Backlick Cinema or at Backlick Cinema Podcast somewhere and, and do that and put it online and I'll probably see it. Or uh or, or you know, if you know smoke signals, I'm not gonna be able to understand it. I'm just telling you out right now. That's it. Though those are the ways you can contact us <laughs> if you have any questions or comments or suggestions. So uh, that's about it. One last time. If you like the show, then please help us grow. To do, to do that, you can subscribe to the show, rate us, 
or write a review on Spotify, Podchaser.com, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Believe me, it matters. Be safe. Share a movie from yesteryear with your family. Hug your loved ones. And if you're going to be anything, be outstanding. Be outstanding.